Acts chapter 13. And we're going to finish this chapter today. Acts 13, verses 13 through 52. I'm going to start by reading these first three verses, verses 13 through 15. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. We'll pause right there for now. Last week we saw Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit, commissioned by the church in Antioch to begin the first missionary journey to take the good news of Jesus to the world, specifically to the Gentiles, although that's going to be a developing reality for them. They don't necessarily set out to go to the Gentiles, but that's going to be where the Lord leads them. And they began in Cyprus. Barnabas was from Cyprus, so it was an easy first stop. They began in Salamis, which was on the east coast, and they walked all the way across Cyprus to Paphos on the west coast. They had that miraculous encounter with Elemis Bar-Jesus, the magician, and Sergius Paulus. All these names are going to end in us from now on because we're in the Greek world. And it was a great story. Well, now they've left Cyprus and they've sailed a soft northwest, probably to a port city called Atalia. And they go 12 miles inland to a city called Perga. We don't get any details about the ministry they did in either of those places. They're going to return there in chapter 14, so we don't get any details about that right now. Except that this is where John leaves them. And this is, remember, John Mark, the one that would dictate the gospel or take dictation of the gospel of Mark from Peter. He was a relative of Barnabas. He was brought along to be a helper for them. And he quits. He goes home. It does not explain why. I think that's a good example of the Bible covering some of its brothers in it, in the story, and not wanting to share all the details because they're not necessary. And we do not get a lot of information about that. And we're not going to talk a lot about that today because we're going to hit that again in chapter 15 because this is going to cause a major rift between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas is going to want to take Mark with them next time. And Paul is going to be like, you've got to be kidding me. He quit. So I'm not going to talk any more about that for right now. Just remember, and we'll pick it back up at another time. Well, they leave Perga and they go up to a different Antioch. Remember, they were sent out from Antioch in Syria. This is Antioch in Pisidia. There were 16 different Antiochs in this part of the world because the Seleucid kings, which was a, a Greek dynasty that had ruled over Israel for a time, they had had a famous king named Antiochus. So they had named 16 different cities Antioch after King Antiochus. But this is Pisidian Antioch. And this is interesting because this city is not only 100 miles away from Perga, but it is 3,600 miles up. They are hiking up into these mountains. It's up into the highlands where there's rivers and gorges and it was famous for bandits stalking this road because it was very dangerous. Now, why would they do that? Why would they go so far up above sea level? Why would they leave what was already a, a, a place where they were going to do ministry? We know from Galatians chapter 4 that Paul first went into this region. He's about to go into what we call the Galatian region of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Because he was sick. Paul had taken an illness, probably in Perga, that caused them to leave. I'm going to read now from Galatians 4, verses 13 through 15, where Paul speaks to this situation. He writes to them and says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So Paul's writing to the Galatians. He says, the first time I came to you, it was because of a bodily ailment. And we don't know exactly what that bodily ailment was. He says you would have gouged out your own eyes. So it's possible Paul had something going on with his eyes. It could have been malaria. Uh, he's down in that Mediterranean zone where those kinds of climates can 
be host to all sorts of different bugs, and Paul got one. And so they're going up really high into the mountains because the air is going to be drier. It's going to be easier for him to recover. They wanted him to go take that fresh air. Who knows? But that's why they're there. And Paul is sick when they get there, but as we're going to see, it's not going to affect the way he preaches the gospel. Now, as I said, they are in modern-day Turkey. This is known as Galatia back then, and they're going to make a a loop. They're going to come back around to Perga and Italia at the end before they, they come back to Antioch in Syria. So right now they're in Pisidian Antioch. And they go to the synagogue, we see. This is what they always did at first. They did this in Cyprus. Paul is going to do this for the rest of his ministry. He's going to go to the synagogue first and preach to the Jews. And this is actually going to be a pretty typical story of what happened to Paul. We're going to see it repeated over and over again. And in the synagogue... They are invited to speak to the people as visiting rabbis. In every synagogue, there would have been the Shema. They would have done prayers. They would have done readings. And then there would have been somebody that exhorted the people, taught the people, preached basically based on what had been read that morning. And since Paul and Barnabas were travelers from Jerusalem, and because it probably would have been known that Paul was a rabbi and a disciple of Gamaliel. So they say, hey, if you guys got something to share, go ahead and share it. They're way up in the mountains. Maybe they don't get guest speakers that often. Well, Paul is going to take this opportunity to preach the gospel. And I think we can assume this is how things normally went. They showed up, they explained who they were, and they got a chance to preach. And they took every opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we have next in the following verses is Paul's standard message. You want to know what Paul taught when he went into all these synagogues? This is it right here. This is what he would preach. We can assume it was probably pretty similar because it's very similar to the things Peter had preached earlier and Stephen. And it's right in line with what he taught in his gospels as well. This was his opening message. After the years that he preached, he probably had it down pat, probably had it memorized. And it's recorded here in full. Luke, who wrote this book, traveled with Paul. He probably heard this thing countless times. So he knows what Paul would have said and Paul would have confirmed this for him as well. This is the gospel with a capital G, the good news. This is the message that Paul preached when you read through his epistles. And he says, if anybody preaches you a gospel different than the one I preached, he's talking about this one right here. And you know what is so cool? We are 2,000 years removed from this. This was 2,000 years ago. This was like the 40s or 50s AD. And we're here in 2020. Almost 2,000 years, exactly. And we're preaching the same message. There are a lot of folks that want to talk about the gospel has been perverted and twisted and changed over the years, but that's not true. And it's very easy to tell you why it's not true because we have their messages in the Bible and that's the same message that we preach. At least as evangelical Christians, we look to what they preached and preach that. It's the same message that has changed my life and your life or that can change your life if you haven't come to Jesus yet, that Paul preached in Antioch of Pisidia 2,000 years ago. People always want to talk about how the gospel is no longer relevant, how the gospel is is done, we're not going to hear it anymore. It's lasted way longer than any idea you've ever heard of, and it's going to endure forever. And I'm going to preach that gospel today. This is going to be a very evangelistic message. So if you are a believer, there'll be some good information for you. Hopefully it'll encourage you to want to be able to share this message. But if you're watching this and you don't know Jesus, this is exactly what you need to hear. This is our message. This is what we preach. If you're drifting through life and you're aimless and you're empty and you just don't know what this is all about, I'm going to tell you today. If you're angry and you're belligerent at God and you don't want anything to do with Jesus, but somehow you wound up watching this or listening to this, this is the message for you. If you're afraid of the consequences of the things you've done, if the the life that you've lived haunts you when you try to go to sleep at night, this is for you. If you've maybe not thought about God in years, you went to Sunday school as a kid and you left the minute you had a chance and you haven't even thought about it, this is for you. Whatever your story is, the message is for you. Paul is going to share the story of Israel, the nation of Israel, and how Jesus Christ came in and changed the ending of that story from one of judgment to one of hope. And it's the same thing for you. Whatever your story is, God wants to change the ending to be a happy one. I'm very excited to get into this today. So let's read now. Paul is going to begin to preach in verse 16, and I'm going to jump down to verse 25. So Paul stood up in the synagogue and motioning with his hand said, 
Men of Israel and you who fear God. Listen, little note there. Men of Israel and you who fear God. There are Jews and Gentiles in this synagogue. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he, underline this, put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John, this is John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So this is how Paul begins his message. This is very similar to how Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7. He's running through the history of the Old Testament, of the Jewish people, of the nation of Israel. And he brings it up to the time of Christ. And if you look at this story, especially if you know your Bible, it's not a happy story in a lot of ways. It's tragic. It began with slavery in Egypt. And they were delivered out into the wilderness, but they were there for 40 years rebelling against God. And it was this push-pull between Moses and the people and God and the people for 40 years. They resented Moses. They resented God's leadership over them. They go into Canaan. They win a great victory over these seven nations. Deuteronomy chapter 7 gives the list. I'm not going to give it today. They go to the land of Israel. They're occupying it. God doesn't even give them a formal government. He says, just follow my law and everything will be fine. And they went through this cycle of doing the right thing and then forgetting it and doing the wrong thing. And then a nation would come in and judge them. And then God would raise up a judge to deliver them and get them back on the right track. But then as soon as the judge died, off they went again. Eventually they get to the point, we want a king. We want to be just like everybody else. And they pick this guy named Saul, the son of Kish, mostly because he was tall, dark, and handsome. He was very presidential, and that's why they picked him. And he was a rotten king. He was terrible for them. He was just like every other king. He wanted to be the authority over all things. He didn't even want to listen to God or Samuel the prophet. A little light breaks in when God chose his own king for them. He says, fine, you had your choice. Now it's my turn. And he picks David. And God made a promise to David. You are going to have a son who's going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Nathan gives him that prophecy. And the Bible is full of promises about this son of David who was going to come. And he was going to be the savior of Israel and the savior of the whole world. That this long cycle of history where Israel is rebelling against God and then facing judgment and having, being battered around like a football in the nations. One day, the Bible says that the son of David is going to come and set all that right. Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 15 and 17 prophesied about him and said, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So you've got this long history, this bloody, rebellious history, the judgment, the exile. They're always looking forward to the coming of the son of David. They call him the Messiah or the promised one. And then he brings it down to John the Baptist, John the wild man, John the guy that wore leather, camel skins, he ate locusts and wild honey. He went to the river and he proclaimed repentance. He said, the problem is not the government or anything else. The problem is in your hearts. So get your hearts ready because the Messiah is about to come. And that was, of course, Jesus Christ. Israel had a long history full of rebellion and sin, cycles of good and bad, choosing bad rulers. Even when they get a good ruler, they can't really get it for too long. Always holding on to the hope of God's deliverance. As it says, and I love that verse, that God put up with them. You ever feel like God's putting up with you? Here's the thing. Your life is a long story too. Your life is just as interesting as the life of Israel. It's got its twists and its turns. 
It's got its ups and its downs. You cycle from good to bad. You've got good seasons in your life where everything is going great, and then it all goes bad again. And then everything falls to pieces, and you do make an effort, and you get it all together. But then before long, you start circling back again. You could write a, you could write a Netflix series on your life. And every episode, what's going to happen next? Who knows? That's life. You self-destruct. You cry out to God, and then you start all over again. As soon as God picks you up, you dust yourself off and say, thanks, God, and off you go, and you live your life again. Maybe you've even chosen a king for yourself, like Israel chose a king. You said, okay, my life is, is a disaster. I've got to have something to rule over my life. I've got to have a higher power. I've got to have something to aim for. And you pick a king. Maybe you, you pick a religion. Maybe you chose Christianity for a while. Maybe it worked for you. Maybe it didn't. You're like, I don't know. It's not really working for me. Or you pick a creed, just something inspiring that you can follow along. Maybe you spend your whole life trolling through the internet, trying to find inspiring quotes to keep you going. And now that's just what I live my life by. And you, you try to surround yourself with good sounding things so that you keep yourself on the right track. But it hasn't worked, has it? Whenever you try to find something to control yourself or to give yourself purpose, doesn't work and you know it doesn't work and the thing is we all lie to each other and we tell each other that it's all working out great so you think well I just must be doing something wrong eventually I'll figure it out I'm here to tell you you're never gonna figure it out God knows your story God has put up with you for a long time too and he has been putting up with you we can try and put on this attitude and this swag that we're so great and God and me are tight but you know what you're really like he's been there your whole life trying to get your attention. Let me ask you this question. Are you ready to start listening to what God has to say today? Because I'm a preacher of God's word. I'm a minister of the gospel and I've got God's message, the same one he's been preaching for 2,000 years to people who are lost and he's ready to speak to you. You know what it means to be lost? You're just drifting, you're aimless, you don't know where you're going, you don't know where you're gonna end up. You're just kind of living day by day. The Lord is ready to speak to you. And here's good news. I have good news. I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm a prophet of love. God made a promise to you too. Just like he made a promise to Israel that one day there's going to be a king who's going to come and set everything right. One day, the Lord said, in your life, I'm going to send a king who's going to set everything right. God is willing to wipe away your past and let you start fresh through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Listen to this promise from God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How does that sound to you? Are you interested in changing your destiny? Take a look at the trajectory of your life. If you keep living this way, where are you going to end up? The Lord is willing to change that. He's willing to make a new creation out of you. He's willing to give you a new ending to your story. You ever think to yourself, I could be fine with all the terrible things that had happened if I just knew that the ending was going to be happy. You have no guarantees of that. But the Lord is willing to give you a guarantee. That's what God has promised. And this is what we're going to talk about today, how you can experience that in your life. Paul tells the story to the church there, or the synagogue there in Antioch. He says, we all know our story. It's a sordid one. It's kind of an embarrassing one. God's been putting up with us. He promised that Messiah was coming. Well, guess what, guys? Messiah has come. And let's read now, verse 26 down to verse 31. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, Jews and Gentiles, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate, that's Pontius Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem, to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. We'll pause there. So Paul brings it home. He says, we know Messiah is coming. Messiah has come. But he's dropping a bomb on these Jews living up in Antioch, Pisidia. He says, Messiah came, but we killed him. The rulers in Jerusalem put the Messiah to death. The one that came after John the Baptist, that had been promised for thousands of years. 
He came and the people killed him. He said they didn't understand. They didn't know who he was. But he does say they should have known. Because I just mentioned, they read the prophecies in the, in the temple or the synagogue every, every week. The people knew the prophecies. They knew what the Bible said about the coming one. But they wouldn't listen. They couldn't see it. And they put him to death. And Paul's going to run through some of these prophecies in a second here. He says it was ignorance. They didn't do it on purpose. But it was inexcusable. Because you should have known. You ever have your parents say that to you? I didn't know, mommy. Well, you should have known. Remember hearing that growing up all the time. And these people, remember, we're 100 miles away from the coastline. We're 3,600 feet up in the air. How are these people supposed to know that this is true? Okay, they executed this guy named Jesus. Heard of John the Baptist. I think I may have heard something about Jesus of Nazareth. They killed him. Well, how am I supposed to know that was the Messiah? How do I know he wasn't just some good guy that got a bad deal in the court system? He says, because God raised him from the dead and that they are there as witnesses. You see why that word witness is so important? We witnessed it. We saw it. So we're bringing it to you. This is the crux of the message here. The Messiah came. We hung him on a cross. We killed him. The fatal flaw of Israel, which was their rebellion against God, had ruined even their chance of salvation through the Messiah. This is why Jesus in Luke 19, verses 41 through 42, he's riding into Jerusalem for the last time on Palm Sunday. It said, when he drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's looking and he says, this could have been your day of triumph, but you're not listening. You're not paying attention. And this is just going to be judgment for you. And Paul is there telling them that Jesus had died and risen from the dead. But you got to consider for a second. This man rose from the dead. Why in the world would that be good news for these people? We killed a righteous man and God brought him back. Shouldn't that be a message of judgment? We killed the Messiah and God brought him back from the dead? Is he raising an army? Is the Lord going to send fire and brimstone down on us? Paul's going to explain, but you need to hear the, the weight of that. That the Jewish people had killed their Messiah. They had killed the one that had been promised to them for thousands of years that they'd been waiting for. He came and they nailed him to a cross. This is what John the Baptist had tried to tell them. All the prophets had tried to tell them. And this is what I now say to you. The problem with your life is not anyone else. It's you. You are the problem. All of us are full of sin. What is sin? It's anything that you do that's wrong. And you have an irresistible drive within you to do the wrong thing. Don't you know that? How many times have you said, I'm turning over a new leaf today. And then by the end of the day, how did that end up for you? It destroys our lives. It destroys the lives around us. It ruins the lives of our kids. It makes our parents miserable. It makes it necessary for us to have laws and court systems and justice and, and police. Why in the world would God help us? Consider that. We always think that we're so great and God ought to help us. But what have we ever done to deserve God's help? You might say, well, it's not my fault that my life is a mess. I've had bad luck. Okay, I believe that you have had bad luck. You've had people in your life that mistreated you. Maybe they even abused you. You've had a, a bad run of employment. You just keep on getting jobs and none of them are any good. Maybe you, you didn't do well in school and now that you finally got serious, it's too late for you to go back. Who knows? Maybe you've had all kinds of terrible things happen to you that anybody in the world would agree are unfair. But can you honestly say that your pride has not made it worse? That your resentment of other people has not made it worse? Your lack of self-control had nothing to do with it? Your temper, which goes out of control, that had nothing to do with the problem? That your passive aggression, where you won't come out and attack anybody, but you'll just say these slight little things under the surface that make people get angry with you, that had nothing to do with it? Circumstances make life hard. People make life hell. And we can make our own lives hell because of what's going on in our hearts. Yeah, you might have lost your job. But if you then go home and you start blowing up at all the people all around you and you're resentful and you're hateful and you're, you don't care about what anybody says anymore and now you're, you're speaking badly to everybody, has that made it better or worse? Somebody hurt you. Is your pride making it better or worse? 
If you're willing just to forgive them, would that not make it better? But no, you're too full of pride. You can't be honest with me and say that your sin has not made your life worse. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 puts it this way, very poetically. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds, all the good things you do, are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That every time there's new growth and you sprout in the springtime and this time we're going to do it differently. Before long, that leaf shrivels up, it turns brown, and the wind comes and blows it away. We're all like that. I'm not picking on you. I'm talking about me too. I'm talking about all of us watching this. Everybody you've ever known has made it worse by our sin. And you were not there to put Jesus on the cross. And neither were these people. And neither were the Antiochenes. And there are a lot of really messed up people later on in history that would say, well, we never put Jesus on the cross. It was those Jews. And they began to persecute the Jews. That's no good. They, they were wrong. Because what Paul is saying is it doesn't matter whether you were there or not. You have the same heart within you. You are the same kind of person. You would have done the same thing in that situation. Your heart is just as wicked or your heart is just as ignorant. But we just said that's no excuse. And equally guilty. I would never have put Jesus Christ to death. Look at your own life. Is Jesus Christ alive in your life or have you put him to death in your own heart? Maybe you grew up in church and you got to a point where you didn't want to live like that anymore. So you said, forget it. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And you basically put Jesus to death by your own hands. You've ignored God. You've treated him like a common thing. Or you've treated him, God forbid, you've treated him like an escape hatch. You do something wrong and then you pull God out to make yourself feel better. And then you move on, and as soon as you're done, you toss them out the window again. You might know all the doctrine. You might know the whole story. You might be able to preach this message yourself. But has it affected you? You've got to recognize that the problem is with you. It's not what's around you. It's your own sin. God wants to change your story. He wants to give you a different ending. But if he just picks you up like you are and puts you in a new situation, you're going to do the same things. You're going to make the same mess somewhere else that you would make here. You ever think to yourself, if I could just move and get away from all these people, my whole life would be different. And then you do. And then it all happens again. If I could just get out of this relationship, she is crazy. If I could get away from this girl and get a, a proper girl, then everything would be fine. And for whatever reason, the last five people you've been with are all crazy. It's because it's you. You're the problem. I'm not saying they're innocent either. Don't worry about them. Worry about yourself. You have to recognize your own guilt first. This is the first step. If you can't do that, God can't help you. If you just want everything to stay the same, you just want the circumstances to get better, sorry. Go to a different seminar. This is the gospel. We're dealing with the root of the problem, which is your sin, your crooked heart. Jesus has risen from the dead. But if you cannot realize that you are just as dead, you're never going to rise with him to newness of life. Can you accept that? It's a hard thing to accept. But once you do, there's victory along the way. There's hope along the way. So I hope that you can. I hope you can at least with me this point say, fine, my life is a mess. It's no good. And I agree with you that I am the problem. That the problem is my sin. The problem is that my heart is corrupt. If you put me in a new set of circumstances, I'm going to make the same mistakes. Fine, I'm with you. Why are you making me feel bad? Because there's good news. Let's get on to verse 32. And we bring you, Paul said, the good news. Remember, he had just said, we just killed the Messiah, but I have good news. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. He's saying, all those promises that we were hoping for, that we thought were lost because we killed Messiah, don't worry, I have good news. Because God raised him up, those promises are still available to us. As is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he's spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So Paul and Barnabas, they're there to bring good news, not bad news, good news. That the resurrection does not mean renewed vengeance, like Jesus is coming for them now that he's back from the dead. 
but mercy for God's people. And he quotes from several Old Testament passages here. Remember, these are Jews. They believe their Bibles. And he's proving to them from the scriptures that Jesus was the one they'd been waiting for. First, he quotes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Talking about the Messiah who is coming. This is actually great because that word for begotten can be begotten or it can be brought forth. It's a dual meaning referring to the fact that Jesus was the son of God, but also his resurrection. He quotes from Isaiah 55, verse 3, saying that we will receive those holy and sure blessings of David. And Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not let your holy one see corruption. He's showing that Jesus needed to die and that he needed to rise from the dead, that he was the Messiah. And he connects the resurrection to the blessings of David, the Messiah. And he's saying, look, it couldn't be David. I know the passage is literally talking about David, but there's something deeper here because David said, you're not going to let me see corruption. But David did see corruption. So who's he talking about? He's talking about the son of David, the Messiah. And Paul is saying, and that son of David is Jesus of Nazareth. And they're there to bring the news. They said, hey, everything the Bible talked about, it finally came true. And they're there to tell everybody. And you might say, well, how, how do we know this is true? How do I know that Jesus died and rose again? Let me ask you this question. How were these people to know that Jesus had died and risen from the dead? Let's just assume for a second that it was true. How are they to know that that happened? Somebody who saw it needed to tell them, right? Because back then you didn't have video evidence. You didn't have audio evidence. You didn't have photographs. What did you have? You had eyewitness testimony. And this is what these people are bringing to them. And let me tell you this. If you're going to try and confirm any event from 2,000 years ago, the only way that you can make sure it happened is if somebody who was there wrote it down. And that's what the Bible is. We have the exact kind of evidence and really the only kind of evidence you could expect to have of the resurrection, which is that people who were there and saw it wrote it down. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared not only did he rise from the dead, but we saw him. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul's running through this long list of people who saw Jesus after he had died and risen from the dead. That's the best you could hope for. Jesus is alive. There's this great story. And it's kind of an intimidating story for these Jews and Gentiles to hear. We killed the Messiah? Paul goes, yeah, but you know what? That's what God always planned. God always planned that the son of David needed to die. That the son of David would rise again and that that's where the blessings were going to come from. But here's the question. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die and rise again? Because you deserve death. You ever watch The Passion of the Christ or any other story where it has Jesus hanging on the cross? That's what you deserve. You deserve torment forever. And before you get offended, you know it. You know that that's what you deserve. You know the wickedness of your own heart. God can't accept that from you. God can't accept who you are and just bring you into heaven and say, yeah, you're, you're fine. Rubber stamp, you're okay. On you go. God can't do that. You say, well, God's God. He can do anything. But God is good. A good judge isn't going to let some murderer walk in and say, okay, yeah, fine. You go ahead. It's no big deal. We'd get offended by that. We'd say, that's a bad judge. In the same way, your heart is so wicked, God can't accept it. And if you get angry, how do you know that? You don't even know me. Liars get angry when they're caught in their lies. Have you noticed that? You, when you lie, when I lie, I don't lie as much as I used to, I hope. But when we lie, we get angry when people call us on it. Why? We're lying. <laughs> We're not telling the truth. Why would we get angry? How dare we get angry? Because we are, don't evaluate it on the truth. We say, I've covered my story so well that anybody who accuses me of lying must just hate me because my story is too good. Isn't that weird how that works? We say, you have no reason to assume that I'm lying even though I am lying. That's how it is with our lives sometimes. My life is fine. It's perfect. You can't say that there's anything wrong with me. Even God can't tell me I'm wrong. People get those tattoos. God, only God can judge me. 
But then you tell them about the judgment of God and then they get angry because really what it means is not even God can judge me. Say, my life is good. No, it's not. Come on. You know what you're like. You know what your heart is like. We just went through this. Well, think about all the things that you've never acted on. Well, those don't count. Yes, they do because they're in there. All the things that have run through your mind. You know what I could do to them? You know what I'd like to say to her? You know what I wish I could do? If I had the ability, you know what I'd do? You say, well, I didn't do it. It doesn't count. God doesn't work that way. God sees that you are that kind of person. Have you ever seen a baby crying when getting angry at you? A little, little baby. They, their face gets screwed up and they scream and they yell and they try to hit you. That little baby would kill you if he had the chance. But they're too little. That's why they start out little so that we can teach them. In the same way, just because you don't have the opportunity to do all the things that are in your heart doesn't mean that they're not in there and that you wouldn't if you were given the chance. But there's good news. I've already accepted that, Tyler. I know that. I know that that's true. Okay, here's the good news. If you've accepted the problem, that the problem is you, and you are ready to face the penalty that this is what I deserve, then God is ready to forgive you. Jesus died in your place. Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus was perfect. He was God made flesh. There was no sin in him. Not only did he never do anything wrong, there was nothing ever wrong inside of him. He was perfect and he died so that his death could count for you so that God can bless you. God wants to show that mercy to people, but he can't because they're so full of sin. So what did he do? He said, I will take the penalty on myself so that way my justice can be satisfied, but I can show mercy to people. So because Jesus' death is what's counting for us, it doesn't matter what you've done. Even if you deserve the death penalty, even if you, on a human sense, deserve the death penalty, even if you've killed somebody, even if you've wrecked your kids' lives, even if you've made people around you so miserable they don't even want to talk to you anymore. The Lord is ready to forgive you. The Lord is ready to let Jesus' death count for you. Jesus paid the price. And God is now standing ready to receive you. And you think to yourself, why would God do that? I know what I'm like. I don't even like me. <laughs> my kids don't even like me. My ex-wife, my ex-husband, they don't like me. Maybe the wife and husband I have now, they don't even like me. Why would God do something like that for me? Because God loves you. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us. How do I know? Because while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God loves you that much. God said, I'm going to die ahead of time hoping that they will receive this blessing because I love them that much. Your life is a burning building and the Lord smashed a hole in the wall and said, come on, out this way. And you might be unlovable. You're like, I know I'm not lovable, but God loves you anyway because God's love is not dependent on what you've done. God's love is because you're his. He created you. You're his child and he is willing to do whatever it takes to save your life. That's the good news. Your life is a mess and it's your fault. Your life is not just some mess that God comes in and says, oh, I'm so sorry this happened. You made the mess. But God loves you enough to say, but I'm going to save you. Lord, bless this mess. I know we don't always mean it when we say that. Lord, bless my life. Bless the way things are. Make it okay. God says, no, I want to take you out of that mess. I want to make your whole life something brand new. And I want to give you eternal life in heaven after this. He wants to rewrite your story to where all the terrible things that have happened to you there's a point in the story where it goes, but, and then everything begins to change, where God brings you to a happy ending. And all those terrible memories, as hard as they were, you can look back on them and say, but it's okay now. Well, how do we do that? Okay, so my life is a mess and it's my fault. I deserve death, but Jesus died for me. What do I have to do? Paul's going to tell us in verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that's Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So Paul brings it home. What's the point of all this? Forgiveness of sins. In Christ Jesus, for all who believe. There's no more works to be done. I'm not about to go tell you to go make a pilgrimage up a big mountain. Climb it up on your knees and stay there in three days in the snow and don't eat anything and then you'll be saved. No. 
Forgiveness of sins. Being freed. That word he uses for freed is dikaiao. It's the word for justified. Paul uses that word a whole ton. This is how we know this is actually Paul speaking. Because he talked about being justified. Being declared righteous in a legal sense. Saying, I know you're not righteous, but I'm going to count you as righteous. I'm going to move you into the column of righteous, even though you're not. That's grace. That's getting something you don't deserve. And he mentions the law of Moses. Remember, these were Jews. They were all up on the law of Moses. They wanted to obey it. They thought, this is how we're going to be saved, by keeping this law. And Paul's like, let's be honest. We can't keep that law. You can't keep that law. All the law could do was show them how far they'd fallen. He would remind them of this when he writes them a letter later in Galatians 2.16. He would say, we know that a person is not justified, that same word for freed, justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The Jews had never lived up to the law. They never could. Even David, you read his life, one of the best people that Israel ever produced, And he didn't keep the law perfectly. What they needed was the promise of God through the son of David, who is Jesus of Nazareth. And now that had come. And that's why Paul was in Antioch, way up in the mountains, telling them this. And he warns them not to commit the sin of scoffing. He quotes here from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. And the prophet Habakkuk was prophesying when Babylon, the empire, was on the rise. And they were on the move throughout the Middle East. And they were coming for Israel. And there were people who scoffed at his warnings. Babylon's not coming here. Are you crazy? Babylon, really? We're going to be just fine. Don't you worry, Habakkuk. Everything is okay. He's like, you're scoffing. You're scoffing like the children of Israel in the wilderness scoffed at God. And the Lord judged them for it. And now Paul is saying, you're scoffing at God's way of escape just like they scoffed at Babylon back in the day, and you're going to face the same judgment if you don't watch out. Maybe you're scoffing this morning. I'm proclaiming a message of simple faith in Jesus, and you think it's ridiculous. Say, I don't need Jesus. I've got a good life. I live my life the way I live it, and it's fine. And you don't have to be a Jew, by the way. You can be following any standard you like. Whatever book you read, whatever mommy blog you follow, saying this is how we're going to live. You can't keep that standard. You know you can't. So what do we do? We invent loopholes. We invent platitudes. We say something like, failure is beautiful. That's what makes life great. That's so sick. What, What is wrong with us that we say things like that? Failure is what makes life beautiful? No, failure is what makes life awful. It's what makes life a disaster. And we try and cover these things up because if we didn't cover them up, we would be so terrified of our own guilt that we wouldn't be able to move forward. But I'm here to tell you, don't scoff at this. You can't meet the standard. That's the whole point. Or maybe you scoff because it's simple. You're telling me all I have to do is believe, trust God, and say, God, I'm going to let you cover my sin. That's it. That's ridiculous. I don't want anything like that. It's too easy. I believe in making my own way. I work hard. I built my business from nothing. And I don't believe in just getting a free ride. You know, there's a man in the Old Testament. He was a Syrian named Naaman. And he had leprosy. And he went to Elisha the prophet to be healed of his leprosy. And Elisha told him, go dunk in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. And this guy got mad. And he didn't do it. He went home. He said, I'm not doing that. It's ridiculous. You're going to tell me I just got to go dunk in the river? What's wrong with my rivers? He said, I thought he'd come out and wave his hand and do some big, long ritual. And Elisha actually didn't even come out. He just sent a messenger to tell him. And in 2 Kings 5, his, his servants come to him and say, my Lord, this is so easy. If he asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. All he's asking you to do is go take a bath and you won't do that. And Naaman actually did go and dunk in the river and he was, he was clean. He was healed. In the same way, we can think it's too easy and we miss out on what God wants to do. Here's the thing. You needed something simple because you're so full of sin. You needed something that did not depend on you one bit. Because if it did depend on you, you're not dependable. Morally, you are broken and corrupt, so it can't depend on you. And also, it was hard. It was desperately hard. It cost God everything. But he did it for you, and he's offering it to you as a gift. Why should you expect something difficult just to stroke your pride? You're living out the same sin that you need to be forgiven of. Well, I can't boast in that. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> well, I don't know about this. It's just ridiculous. I don't need to believe in all that. Well, let me ask you this question. You're going to die one day. You're going to die. Maybe sooner rather than later. I don't know. I had a friend in college. We were all going to school. We were all growing up. We were all headed for the best time of our life. We were getting our degrees. She rolled out of her bunk bed in the middle of the night while she slept, hit her head on a table, and died a few days later. Just that quick, that easy. She hadn't done anything wrong. Nobody did anything to her. Just bad luck. You have no idea when your life is going to end. Are you ready to face the judgment? What are you going to say to God then? Well, if God's merciful, he'll give me mercy. You expect God to give you mercy. He's offering you mercy right now. And if you reject his help your whole life, now that the end has come, oh, actually, actually, I do want to believe in Jesus. No, come on. That's sick. We, we would look down on somebody like that. And so does the Lord. But right now, the end hasn't come yet. And all the Lord is saying is believe in Jesus. Just accept my forgiveness. Say, I'm done living life my way. I'm going to live like Jesus wants me to live. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Do you really want to get everything that you deserve? Yes, I do. No, you don't. Believe me, you don't. Everything you've ever got away with, you want to get what you deserve because of that? But here's the thing. God is willing to forgive what you have done. Not only forgive what you've done, but to forgive who you are. To give you a new hope, a new future, not just now, but forever. So that when you die, you get to keep on living in heaven apart from all this mess. And all it takes is for you to believe, repent, and just accept the forgiveness of the Lord. Repent means to turn around, change your mind, change the way you're acting, and go after Jesus and trust that his death was enough for you. And this is what Paul preached, and it's what I'm preaching today. Verse 42, as they went out, so Paul's done. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So it's not going so well for Paul and Barnabas after that first day. This is another scene that's going to be mirrored in almost every city they go to. They're going to preach the gospel. The Jews are going to mostly reject it. The Gentiles are going to mostly receive it. And there's going to be a riot that's going to chase them onto the next town. The Jews were jealous of the crowds. It says they reviled them in verse 45. That word for revile is blasphemuntes. That's where we get the word blaspheming from. They were trying to get rid of them. Even during the sermon, Paul's preaching this message again, and they start heckling him during his message. And so they rebuke the people. He said, you have thrust aside the word. It was held out to you that God offers you forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And you said, get that out of my face. I don't want it. And Paul said, then you have judged yourself to be unworthy of eternal life. I can't understand why God would send somebody to hell. God is offering you the chance to spend forever in heaven and you have rejected it. Don't put the blame on him. And they quote from Isaiah 49 verse 6 when it says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles are listening so they said, this was held out to the Jews. It's the Jewish Messiah. They come first, but it's going to the Gentiles now because they're going to listen. What a stupid reason to reject the gospel. Jealousy. Jealousy. It had nothing to do with the message. They did not pick apart one thing that Paul and Barnabas said. They were jealous because more people came to hear them preach than came to hear the rulers of the synagogue preach. So they begin to blaspheme and slander them publicly. It offended their pride. It offended their culture and their sensibilities. I urge you today to consider the truth. Not to worry about whether or not it's going to disrupt your life. Because I can go ahead and tell you, it's going to disrupt your life. Things are going to change. Spoiler alert. Everything's going to change if you follow Jesus. Well, I don't know then. But that's what you need, isn't it? Mark chapter 10, there was a man that came to see Jesus. He said, Lord, what do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus told him, well, keep the commandments. He's like, well, I've kept them all. And Jesus is like, yeah, but you're missing one. 
And this is what he said in Mark 10, 21 through 22. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus isn't saying you've got to get rid of your stuff to be saved. He's saying this guy was so wrapped up in his money that he couldn't even come to Jesus. So he told him to do the one thing that he was not willing to do. And it says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You cannot come to God with something in your hand. Okay, God, I want to hold on to all this stuff. You don't come to God with conditions. I'll believe in Jesus if you let me keep doing this. If you let me keep believing this. If you let me whatever doesn't work. We're not equal negotiators with God. God is offering you mercy. If a judge offered you mercy, say, okay, but can I still steal on Thursdays? No, what's wrong with you? Of course not. And I don't care if some pastors will tell you that you can keep doing whatever you want. You just live however you want. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be holy because holiness leads to true happiness. You must come and die alongside Christ Jesus. That old life that you've been living, it's got to die. Everything about it, all of its motivations, all of its enjoyments, it's all got to die on the cross so that it can rise again with Christ Jesus. If you're so tied up to something in your life, whether it's your money or your dreams or your sexual preferences, give me a break, right? If you're so tied to something in your life that you can't even let it go for heaven, God can't help you. If God's going to have to help you, he's going to have to break you first. But you can allow yourself to be broken at the word of Jesus rather than through life. Or maybe you have been broken. It's time to learn the lesson of being broken. Hearing the gospel is dangerous, you guys. This message is dangerous. If you're listening to this and you're hearing it, you will never again be able to say, well, I didn't know. Because you're going to stand before God and say, God, I didn't know that I had to believe in Jesus. He's going to say, it was on March 29th, 2020, during the quarantine. You watched Tyler Warner. You listened to him on the, on the radio. You heard him online. And he preached the gospel to you. You did hear it. No excuses. You can judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. You can go away hardened in your heart. And when you reject the gospel, you go away worse than before. Because you've rejected a chance to change. You've doubled down on your sin. The stuff that's making your life miserable. Why would you do that? That's what these people did here. And Paul and Barnabas said, then we're not going to talk to you anymore. We're going to the people who are going to listen. And verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecutions against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles rejoiced. Because no longer are they being told they've got to follow some foreign standard that has nothing to do with them. They're being told, if you believe in Jesus, it's enough. God wants to save you. God doesn't want to tell you how to save yourself. He wants to save you. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's so cool. It means God is behind the scenes working out who's going to be saved. And when we proclaim the gospel, we get the chance to see if the Lord is going to draw any of these people to himself. Hopefully today as well. But you see, they drove Paul and Barnabas away. They, they stirred up persecution. They, they stirred up lies against them to get them driven out of these mountains. Paul and Barnabas don't sweat it. Jesus had told them to do this in Luke 9 verse 5, and they do it. They shook the dust off their sandals and they moved on. He said, fine, you've heard the good news now. We're going somewhere else. It's up to you to respond to the good news. And they're going to go to Iconium and plant another church. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 through 16. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? When we preach the gospel, we're the aroma of Christ. People smell the gospel, so to speak. And to some people, that smell is a smell of death. Because it's the message being preached that they're going to reject. And for others, it's the smell of life because it's going to be the greatest day of their life. The disciples were blessed and full of joy. The others had brought a curse upon themselves. When you preach the gospel like I'm doing now, you draw a line in the sand. You're either over here or you're over there. And it forces people further into those camps. So what about you? 
This is where we're going to bring it home. Have you received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Or are you still a scoffer? Are you hearing the message? You're smelling the aroma of the gospel and it's an aroma of death to you because you're just going to double down on your dead life. If that's the case, if you're not interested in becoming a Christian hearing this, you're not interested in believing in the Lord and giving up your life, let me ask you why. Which point in the, in the sequence that I went through today is your hang-up? Are you not a sinner? Do you think that you don't do anything wrong? You don't think that your heart is corrupt? Be honest with yourself. You know what you're like. You say, oh, I'm not a sinner. Then you're perfect? Well, no, I'm not perfect. Then you're a sinner. This is how it works. Is that your hang-up? It can't be. Number two, ha have you not offended God? You, you're a sinner. Does that not affect God? Do you not deserve death? Well, I don't think I deserve hell. As compared to who? You've corrupted God's world. You have made the world a worse place. There are people that are miserable because of you. There are people who are more angry because of you. There are situations that got worse because you were a part of them. Is God going to just overlook all that? What about number three? Do you not believe that Christ has risen from the dead and offered you a free gift? I just can't believe that. Why not? I don't know. I just can't believe it. Well, it doesn't matter if you believe it. It matters if it's true or not. And you've got eyewitness testimony telling you that that's what happened. So you, you either believe it or you don't. That doesn't make it not true. And are you just too prideful to submit your broken life to God? Is that it? Are you just a scoffer? You're too full of pride? You're not willing to come and get on your knees and say, God, take my life. Change my life. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. Please forgive me. If you're too proud to do that, who can help you? We can become addicted to our terrible lives, you guys. We can become addicted to our life like we're addicted to a soap opera. If things go too long without something happening, we work it out so that something happens. Somebody's going to come home drunk. Somebody's going to get a new boyfriend that's going to be a disaster. Somebody's going to get sick. Somebody's going to get injured. There's going to be some financial situation. Somebody's going to blow up another credit card because we're addicted to our lives being like that. We're addicted to the rush of arguments addicted to the rush of legal trouble it's true this happens they become comfortable they're even exciting and maybe you think because so many exciting things are happening to me i must be important but your life lacks purpose and you know it what happens when it's over what happens when your life ends i just don't want to think about that right now you have to think about it because it could end tomorrow it could end today what makes you think that you're promised tomorrow you're not I'm proclaiming to you good news. I'm not just telling you to be a killjoy. I'm telling you to honestly face who you are. Honestly face who you are. And now I'm calling you to come and receive the good news by coming to die. Come and die with Jesus. Die to your old life. Say, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to believe that what he did was enough for me. And I'm going to let him transform the way I live. Repentance, it means turning around, turning from going this way and going that way, turning from believing that way and going this way. Sometimes we only do one of those things. We change the way we believe, but we don't change the way we act. That's no good. Or you change the way you act, but you don't change the way you believe. In which case, what good is that for you? Repentance. Die to your old life so that Jesus can give you a new one. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. This is not just an initial moment of conversion I'm talking about. Maybe you did come down the aisle once or twice. I'm going to get it all together. No, I'm talking about a lifelong commitment to Christ Jesus. A lifelong dedication to the church and to the Bible. A lifelong journey of submission to God. How is that different than any other time I've changed my life? Because this time God's involved. Because God is going to offer you that forgiveness, give you that forgiveness, and send you his Holy Spirit. And this time, even when you do fail, there is grace for your failure. Because the Lord is not looking at you, he's looking at his son Jesus. So that even when you do fail, the Lord's like, I already died for that. Let's keep going. Let's move forward and try again tomorrow. And there's the hope of glory at the end of it. Did you know that for you, your death can be a day of joy? You can look forward to the end of your life, not in some weird sixth sense, but you're like, you know what? One day I'm going to get to be with God forever. I'm going to see my, my beloved family who believed again. I'm going to get to cast off this body which is broken and sick and full of sin and receive a heavenly reality forever. 
You can't earn it yourself. You've blown it too many times. Even if you were to be perfect from now on, you've got your whole past behind you. So God did what needed to be done in order to offer you salvation freely. Justice has been satisfied, and now he can give mercy. There's a long story behind you, full of slavery and suffering, broken relationships, addictions, nightmares. But all of that could just be the opening chapters to a happy ending when God forgives you of your sins, transforms you by his Holy Spirit, and makes you into the person he's created you to be. What am I asking you to do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. And God, I'm asking for his death to count for me. And then say, what do you want me to do, Lord? And then the Lord will tell you and will help you. And the Bible will show you. Agree that you are a sinner and ask for forgiveness. God will give it to you. And that's when life really begins.